Well, they do a bit, but uh, of course, as well. I mean, the school is still exactly the same as when, when I was here, for you know, twenty odd years ago. Still, this cinema is exactly the same. The cafeteria is still the same. So, I, I was here when the, the wood benches, the wood, the, the cafeteria was one year old. It was just brand new when I when I came here. So, it's still still the same planks of wood there. So, <laughs> still the same sign sign on the projectionist's room. To not disturb. <laughs> They're not the same students. Not the same students. So you left. You left the film school. You come from Switzerland. Yes. Yeah. I came here. Uh, yeah, I was actually. Uh, <coughs> I studied studied in in, in Zurich University um, linguistics and li English literature and history of art, and I came in my sort of. Uh, I had to come here to England to do it as an exchange, uh, exchange uh, professor, you know, like kind of an exchange course. And I always wanted to get into films, and uh, that's when I applied to London Film School, and then I got a grant from the city of Zurich to come here. So, what attracted you about thing. getting into film? Well, I started very early on. Mm -hmm. You know, when I was like 12 and 13, 14, 15, yeah. did like all these. Single eight movies and all that. So, yeah. <laughs> it was always it was always there, and then hmm? you knew it was going to be cinema. No, I didn't know that. I just not knew it was film. So um, I really found cinematography here at the school. Actually, through my in a way through my cinematography teacher there, which was uh, Bill Oxley at the time, um, and I owe a lot to him actually. So, what was it that particularly attracted you towards cinematography? I probably to, I mean, I was as well, you know, I loved photography, stills photography. I did have my own dark room, all that. I was always involved with images. And, um, you know, it's like, I, cinematography is a great, I mean, I'm a wire in the end, you know, I love to watch. <laughs> and yeah, I mean, and, and then to tell stories. Uh, and I directed here as well, you know, I found out that directing is great, but I'd, you know, I'd much rather actually shoot and help the director to hopefully get the best out of his story and get it onto the, onto the screen. The whole, you know, film language, uh, I was very fascinated by. And of course, yeah, and I mean, I think, you know, the cine cine cinematographer in a way has the best job of all. <laughs> I do believe that. <laughs> in a weird way, don't you think? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. I don't have I don't have to deal with the executives so much, you know, like the directors have to always take the shit from the money people. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we'll come we'll come back to that bit. Um, but when when you left the school, where 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 did you see yourself? Going, so you've gone a very long way. And, and, um. Yeah, no. When when I left school, I, I did, of course. You know, I went back to Switzerland uh, because when my grants ran out, I you know was broke. Uh, I had to now start, and for the first time, I was 26. I'd never done anything else but school until then. Uh, I had to get a life, you know. So um, I went back and knew that I would be, you know, ready to become a camera assistant, you know. I knew that, you know, because I shot a couple of things here. I was successful here at the school. My films were shot at the film festival, blah, blah, blah. But I knew very well, you know, in the real world, I'm just maybe a camera loader. <laughs> and um, that's what I did. I knew some, because I worked as a PA before in my semester holidays, I knew some people in Switzerland. So I actually was very fortunate to get in with uh, and actually become, uh, you know, get jobs as, a, as an assistant and as a second assistant quite quickly but I you know like every like always you need breaks I mean I had what what happened was like two weeks after I basically arrived in, in Switzerland after I moved back <coughs> I got a call from my dear friend Fiona Cunningham Reed who had been to film school as well here and she said she's gonna she's lighting this student film in Oxford and she needs an operator and since, you know, she was two, two terms before me. So I said, like, you're crazy. I mean, I'm broke. I can't, you know, like, it's no money. Uh, they pay your airfare, you know. <laughs> so basically, I said, oh, you know, 
Sure. <laughs> and next day I flew and uh, we went to Oxford and, and I ended up doing this no-budget um, Oxford student film where they basically they called this film school to get some people who knew something you know, for free. Fiona, for Fiona was a lighting cameraman. I was uh, the operator, but I sort of had a lot more experience than she did. Whatever, I ended, we ended up doing this no-budget film about halfway through the shoot, the BBC actually decided to, they saw some rushes to buy it, and it ended up actually being even released, shot in Super 16, and then it was like blown up to 35. And um, that film, you know, it was interesting. I mean, that, that, that really was a big break, because <coughs> the director, Michael Hoffman, five years later, I did actually my first American film with him. Uh, Hugh Grant was in it, Imogen Stubbs, uh, um, uh, uh, James Wilby, I mean, it was like everybody who was in this film, uh, uh, Andy Patterson was one of the, he was uh, one of the, he was the AD, I mean, uh, everybody, everybody, uh, the, um, um, what's her name, who did the music for it, she has two Oscars now, um, it's re really pretty amazing. But that was just uh, this no-budget student film, and through that really that's what brought me very early to America because Mike Hoffman with the next strip got um, into the Sundance lab and became a sort of a protege of Redford and um, I was prepping this film for him for like over like three years whenever I had made a little bit of money you know in Switzerland I'd fly to the States he, he was from he's from Boise Idaho so <laughs> I'd fly there and we would, you know, dream about that film that we're going to do and so on. And then when it finally got, <coughs> um, he was actually visiting to Switzerland. He was in, in, in our apartment in Zurich. When the phone call came that the money came through for this film, a film called Promised Land, and that Redford himself would produce it, which meant that it became a big movie. I mean, a big independent film. At that time, we're talking 1986, it was like a four and a half million dollar movie, which is today I would like a twenty dollar movie. So immediately for me it was clear I won't be able to shoot it because I'm this no name Swiss, you know. Yeah. So but I said I of course knew as well that I will not <laughs> let go. I mean I'll be there, whatever, you know. I mean uh, and so um they actually offered me to do second unit on it, and um, so I did, uh, did prepped really the film for a long time. It took, it took a long time for them to find a DP, an American DP, which then they did. Uh, they found somebody, and then I stepped into the background and I started second unit, and um, after the first week, the DP was fired. <laughs> and I was asked to take over for a couple of days to, until they would find somebody else. And so I did. <laughs> I didn't know what was on the truck. I didn't know nothing, you know. I had a really good gaffer who really helped, helped me out these two days. And then Michael Chapman was hired to come on. But then they actually kept me on with Michael Chapman standing by, uh, just in case I would fuck up. And I, the only reason that I, I'm, I'm sure now, the only reason that kept me besides, you know, was because I was so cheap. Because, I mean, of course, I was very cheap. <laughs> so, anyways, that, that was my first American movie, Promised Land. That, that was my second big break. First break was to meet Mike Hoffman or meet these people, and then secondly, that the DP got fired. <laughs> you know, so, anyway, that brought me to America, really. I think you must have a secret knack of learning to be in the right place at the right time. Well, I actually believe that it happens to everybody. You just have to... When it happens, you have to take it, I think. I mean, and I mean, the fear is there. I mean, the fear is fear. Uh, the fear is fierce. Yeah. Yeah. Do whatever you can. I mean, I always tell myself, yeah, I do whatever I can do, uh, you know, as best as I can do it. And have a lot of good friends that help you. Have good, I mean, for me in the end, my, my thing I'd always feel like is it's the crew that saves you. <laughs> you know, your gaffer, your focus puller. Key grip. They save your ass every day. Mm -hmm. you know, by not making, making you letting you make mistakes. So, if we talk about the the, um, the crew, 
Um, when, when a script arrives on your door, you obviously have a bit of a method of selecting scripts that can work for you. What, what is it? How do, you, how do you look at a script? Obviously, they, they arrive and... Well, <clears throat> they do arrive, but often they're attached with the name of a director or with <clears throat> somebody you know already. I mean, it, 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 it rarely have I done a film, I mean, I have done films that just are, you know, scripts that come to the door. Very often you're referred to by somebody, by a director or producer you've worked with before. Often it, I mean, it, it, especially at the beginning of the career, you, it, 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 it happens. I mean, I have an agent, but my, my agent didn't get me a lot of jobs. I mean, it's not about, the agent is not about getting jobs. In this, anyway, as a cinematographer. Yes, I have got, gotten jobs through my agent as well, but I mean, I basically, my agent, who is Sandra Marsh, who's an English lady, uh, she um, who has a company in, as well in, in, in LA, but she was my career guide. She brought me to LA in a way, and she said, okay, you know, you have to go there now. She said, I, you'll make it. <laughs> she helped me doing it in the end, you know, after yeah. this first film, Promised Land, to actually meet with, go to LA, meet with people, and then, you know, the second movie I did there, she, you know, she basically just... Um, but when I get a script, yes, I'm, you know, it's always, but it, it is important, it's not just the script, it's always attached with, and it's for me very important, who is it attached with, who is directing it, what actors are in it. Because it, it, it sort of puts it a little bit in, a, in perspective. Because there's a, a lot of bad scripts around, and sometimes if, if, if good names are attached, you have to do them anyway. Because it's good, you know. Or the other way around, a good script that you know that it's not going to happen doesn't help. Especially with independent films, it's so fickle. You know, it's always a new, You never know whether they're going to be folding. I mean, like. Three, four years ago, I did a film with Roman Emmer Roland Emmerich, prepping. I was like already in Prague. We were like shooting in Prague. Uh, sets were starting being built, and the plug was pulled. I mean, even on a Roland Emmerich film, that can happen, you know. So, because it wasn't a, it was a smaller, film. brilliant script about Shakespeare, and uh, but not a, you know. So, Sony got cold feet. I mean, they actually pulled the plug. I couldn't believe it. <laughs> So you never know. Before, you, before you're halfway through the movie, you never know when it's going to happen, going to finish, really. Yeah, it's days. It's yeah. Sometimes day by day. It is, kind of, yeah. And in terms of your, your thinking, you, you, you get a script. We can take the, the script to the film we've just seen. But um, how do you start thinking about it? What's your process in terms of thinking about it? Well, I mean, for example, I can take the example of the film I'm going to do now, mm -hmm. you know, it's a film called The Lonely Maiden, and it's a small film, going to be shot in Boston, an English director, Peter Hewitt. Um, and I got that script, mm -hmm. and it's a story of three museum guards um, that all are attached to one, to somehow, for some reason, to a piece of art they guard. You know, uh, and after 30 years, this whole, uh, the, their, um, uh, the exhibit is being changed, and they all basically get together, find out about each other, and then they, it's basically a heist movie. They figure out a way to steal their pieces and replace them so, so they can keep them. So it's a very old-fashioned, healing comedy type um, story. And um, so I read that, and I thought, like, actually, it would be really interesting. And, uh, um, but I still don't know what this film should look like. I mean, it takes time. I mean, I, I have my ideas, and I talked with the director about it, that it should be in a way old-fashioned. It should be not like a very, it's, it's a very unhip thing, you know, it's slightly up there, slightly out there. But I know that there, uh, the production designers and so on, the approach is very realistic, you know, very naturalistic. We're going to shoot in real art gallery where we build one of the big galleries on the stage. But, so I'm, I'm, I'm very nervous at the moment because I don't know, I'm, I'm flying on Sunday to Boston and um, in two weeks later we shoot. I'm, I'm already prepping, I should really be there now because normally I prep six weeks prep. In this film I have like two because I had to come here and because I was, I mean, 
film festival in Abu Dhabi last week, so it's like I couldn't be there. So I only met the director. For two days I've been to Boston scouting and sort of my first. So I don't know. I mean, the, the, the thing is, I mean, <clears throat> I know through experience it'll all come together <laughs> somehow, I hope. You know, but it's uh, there are still a lot of discussions that's going to happen, and I'm, it, it's not so clear. But because I, we decided, or I think this film should be shot anamorphic. I mean, not not anamorphic, and super thirty-five, but widescreen, because I think it it will force us into framing, into using the frame to tell the story, and not being like you know, uh, and. Uh, director agreed with that. Um, but that's about where I am. And to answer yours, <laughs> your question, I never quite know. It's a process. You know, every film I've done is a process. I mean, my first, my second studio picture I done was a film called Singles, which Cameron Crowe directed. And it's about the music scene in Seattle, in a way, and sort of thing. And uh, there as well, I mean, like, during the whole film, I didn't know, you know, <laughs> I was winging it in a way, look-wise. And then in the end, I'm, I, it's another film I'm very proud of because I think that film came together really brilliantly. I don't know how many people have seen it, but it's, a, it's, actually, it's actually a real gem of a film. And when I look at it, you know, once the film was finished and I looked at it and said, like, I was kind of amazed how good it was, <laughs> you know, and how good it looks uh, that, that it actually... So a lot of things are, I think, come out of your kind of stomach. <laughs> or, you know, you have... To, I, I, I think you do have to trust your sort of immediate taste or whatever, sometimes. I mean. Do you look back at other cinematographers or where do you tend to go for... <laughs> no, sure. I mean, I look at, but um, you know, I, there's a lot of cinematographers I admire, and I see like, how the hell did they do it? Chris Mangus, for example. I mean, like, you know, he did it last year. He did a film. Um, what was it called? Uh, with you know, the woman that the, the two women that uh, what was it called? Uh, <laughs> talking about it. Where's IMDb if you need it? You know? yes. Where's my Absolutely. computer? <laughs> Uh, we all need that, don't we? Right, right. While you're on the phone, I'm a DB look, look at people up. Um, what was it called? Um, yes, thank you very much. Well done. <laughs> <laughs> Notes on Scandal. And it, yeah. it, it was so brilliantly photographed that nobody noticed how well that film was photographed. You know? um, I mean, that's people I admire because it's like it, cinematography is not about showing yourself off, it's about telling the story. And that's what I learned in this school, by the way. It's about helping to tell the story in the best possible way uh, for the story and not for yourself to make a showreel. It's not about the showreel. Yeah. So you join, you join up with the production and you arrive and I guess the production design is already on board. Yes. Obviously a very important relationship, working relationship to have. And um, any, any thoughts? The production design of course is really, you know, ultimately important because you cannot, um, whatever you shoot, if somebody has to build it or, or it has to, if if you end up with the best story, uh, you end up in a kitchen and it just has four white walls, what can you do? It won't look good, you know. Whatever you do, it won't look good. No, but I mean, a good production designer, of course, enhances it's all about storytelling. It's about, about creating an environment that is right for the story, for the characters, and, and, and gives shows, shows the character that moves in these rooms and these spaces um, as who they are. And uh, a well-designed well -designed film makes it very easy for me, because I don't just point the camera and it's, you know, it's kind of there. And I was very fortunate. The first three films I did, that I did with a production designer called Eugenia Sanetti. I did a film called Soap Dish with him. I did a film called Some Girls with him. And this uh, uh, film called uh, this film called Promised Land. And through him, again, I learned a lot. I mean, he was one of my teachers in a way, very early on. By, I mean, it just the the taste he has, and the, the he had a 
big influence on the films. I mean, we would go, for example, for my second film, sometimes we would go, the director, him and I, we would go for two weeks, to the island of Elba, you know, hiding away and talking through the movie and doing, sto not storyboards really, but, you know, shot lists. I'm just discussing the movie really intensely. And after that, basically the film was rewritten and a lot of stuff was in, in was put back into the script that came to a large extent as well from Eugenio. And um, you cannot underestimate what, as a cinematographer, what, the, what, what a good production designer can do for you. Uh, because I've worked, I've worked as well with some that are not so, uh, you know, good. And then you have to fight for it because, you know, if you have somebody who tells you, who builds a window into the wall where you need it and you can put a light through there and has that, actually offers that, and you don't have to go and say, but how the hell do we... Somebody who thinks lighting because the production design is to a large extent lighting as well. You know, it's like you have to find the locations, number one, very important to find the locations. The production designer is on always before I am. Location scouting with the director. The stuff he offers to the director. If he offers stuff that's shootable, it's very different than if you end up, again, on the fifth floor if something has a good view that you can't light it, you can't work in it. Um, so uh, the whole look, you know, is, I mean, the production designer is, now, did I hear you correctly in that the whole of this film was shot on the studio? Yes, it was all shot on the stage. It is pretty amazing, yeah. And actually, I'm very proud of that because it was, uh, that's another way. I mean, I had, I was, uh, when we started with this film and I read the script, with the Roland Emmerich script, it's always, you read the script, you read the first three pages and, I, and you basically say, like, how the fuck are we going to do it? Because it's like, it's so ridiculous. I mean, like, okay, there's like storms, whatnot, whatnot. Or in Godzilla, it was like in the first four pages, there was like boats being pulled under. Uh, go, I mean, like, it was like, and, uh, and she said, like, well, and then I said, like, basically, oh, I hope Roland knows what he's doing. And I was like, <laughs> but uh, so with, but here it was early on, we decided, I mean, it was decided to go to Canada. And one of the reasons was because in winter, you know, we, we actually do get snow. And, <clears throat> In the first discussions we had, I mean, I said, like, you know, you can't really shoot snow outside. You can't act in the cold. And in Canada, it's really cold. You have to, I mean, it was, for me, clear that we have to, we have to do all the storm stuff and the snow stuff. It has to be done on stage. And then there came the whole thing with, uh, with New York and the, the, um, the water coming into the city. Uh, this whole sequence in front of the, uh, the public library where, you know, we, we couldn't shoot that on location because, I mean, like, there is not the, uh, we can't close down Fifth Avenue and uh, then you have water, you have, you have control. I mean, we had, there's no water and in the end there's like three feet of water, so it has to be done in a tank. So you have to build, so definitely has to be on stage somehow. And, um, so, I mean, the, the difficulty was for me, you know, because, I mean, it, the other thing was, this is a film about natural, about storms, natural phenomenons that are actually, if you think about it, rather ludicrous, the idea. So it has to look good that you make that leap of faith that the audience has to believe it. You have to get in there and sort of believe it. And for that, it has to look real. You can't, you, it, it can't be, it has to look real. And so, you know, it was, I mean, I didn't tell anybody, but I didn't know the fuck what I was doing. I mean, I, you know, but you have to project that you know what you're doing, but, you know, discussing with production that I, I want to just Im imitate nature, you know, okay, we built this huge sky, uh, I wanted the, the sky be, the, the ambient be blue, so half blue, so, you know, cars and, and, and tungsten lights would show up warm, that you have a color difference and all that. So it means like huge rigs and in, so it's like you tell pro the producers that it's going to cost three million dollars to rig the stage. And of course you haven't done, I mean I didn't know. <laughs> you just have to, together with my gaffer, thank God, I mean again my gaffer and my key grip, they're my allies. 
we discussed it and we were like, with them I can be, you know, like, fuck, fuck you think, you know, shit, I did this there, and I love that film, okay, you know. And so, so the concept of this, for this film, the lighting concept was very simple. Basically to imitate what an overcast day looks like, which is like basically a, a sky, so we built, um, and we had like four huge stages, one was a, as well a, a, an industrial, room that was um, Alstom where they build trains. Uh, that's where the, the um, public library was. <coughs> so basically to build a sky with lights, you know, lights then silk, double silk, so you don't see the light bulbs uh, because it's going to be reflected in everything. We have cars in there and stuff, so you see everything. Yeah. So I mean, I, I didn't know whether that's going to this is going to work. Because you do car commercials, you have huge rigs, and you, it, it's very, we have to be very careful that you don't see the actual light source. And there I was, and we had like about two, no, was it 2,000, 2,000 watt lamps in, in all not there. I mean, like you could light a whole city with that thing when it was all up. I mean, and, um, and there was like, you know, a week before shooting, everything was written by on a Sunday. We had a test, a rain test, because we had to build in as well these rain rigs, these rain sprinklers, and they had to had sewn around where these rain pipes, uh, socks of the same material, so you wouldn't see. And it was all silk, which I ended up finding out that you can dye the silk half blue because if you can gel the lights, that would be too expensive. That would be because these gels as well burn through, and it would be so much. So we actually found my gaffer again. Uh, Key Grip had the, uh, had the idea. He, he's, he knew of somebody, some company in LA that could dye material, dye, dye silk in, in a precise color. So that's half blue. So I mean, that was, you know, and again, that had to be approved by production. It was $100,000 worth of cloth, you know. and uh, <coughs> So, you know, and we all never had done it before. So you just in the end, you just do it. And, and that first test day, you know, that Sunday before we started shooting, you know, where the visual, the effects people tested the rain rigs, and we had all these caps in this tank, these caps that had, had oh, there were like 50 cars that had all their engines taken out and so on, and, but still could have their, their lights running, they had like batteries in there and whatever. First time I saw the rain on and everything, I took a picture with my, with my little digital camera. And I saw, wow, it, it works, it works, it looks good. <laughs> you know, and you don't see the lights. You don't look into, the, into these windshields and, and just try to figure out where this light comes from. It actually did work. And I'm, sure I, I, most, I, I'm sure most of you didn't really notice that. I mean, everything, everything that was in the water there, you know, the, you really don't notice that it's on the stage. And then I had a, a techno crane so we could move around. The, the great thing about that lighting concept was that you could actually pan around. You don't have to relight much. So we could actually, once we were lit, we could work very fast. And the same thing we did for the winter and the snow, snow sequences, which was another stage, uh, which we called snow stage, which we had the whole thing. We had rigged snowland. We had rigged. Um, as well with this sky, and I had backlights all around that we could or could not use, but the setup was very simple. A dimmer board operator could bring the, bring it up and down a bit. We could um, we could work really quickly. So we, we were not work, 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 waiting on me. We were waiting mainly on the effects people with their fake snow and the big, huge engines that they blew that crap and. Yeah, so. But, you know, it's a typical example. I, I really didn't quite know. And, and you just have to sort of take that leap of faith and think like, oh my god, it'll be all right. <laughs> yeah. enormous, enormous special effects on that. Enormous special effects. And then as well, visual effects. I mean, this film is, is, is very special because it is, well, not only have it has a lot of, well, most visual effects films have a lot of floor effects as well. You have to, because you have to, the visual effects are so expensive and so complicated to do um, that it's often a lot more better and cheaper to do the things for real if you can. You know, a, a snowstorm you cannot produce on 
I mean, it's not it cannot work as a digital effect. It has to be real. It has to look real. So you ha end up have to having to figure out all these different snows, these different materials. Is it polymer? Is it paper? Is it you know plastic snippets that we had all these different snows. Uh, uh, that we were blowing about on the floor was polymer because it looks really good, but it's very slippery. It's like this water, this stuff with which is very heavy. Uh, this powder you, you put water in, and then it, but it looks very good. Then you had paper. The best snow look looks is paper snow, shredded paper that you blow, uh, but it produces this dust. So everybody has to wear masks and uh, for. Actors, it's very difficult. They can't really speak. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's so complicated because if, then for the close-ups with the actors, you have to use a different snow because they have to as well be able to function. Um, yeah. So, <laughs> and then integrate it with the big visual effects sequences to make them fit into the film. And that was a, in a post-production period. Um, for me, that was the first time I did digital intermediate. Um, so, could you just explain? It means that all the film was digitized, 2K, high resolution digitized, and then the effects were added into it. I mean, the effects were always filmed out, made into film as well and the negative as well. But then it was in, in, uh, integrated into the into the you know, photography. And then the digital intermediate means that you can actually, uh, in the end, you can color time in a way like as if you were on, a, on video, put it simply. Because on film, the color time process is very simple. You can't do much. You cannot change the characteristics of the film. You cannot change the contrast, for example. You can change color and brightness. That's it. So in digital intermediate, you can do a lot more. You can actually change, and you can as well, within the frame, do things. You can make part of the frame darker, or you can raise the blacks, you can do all this stuff you can do. Um, but the key thing was that if you have a film with visual effects, you, and the visual effects are so expensive, you have to make them look good. So you have to be able to integrate them so you don't notice it. You know, when, when you cut from a shot that is, has a lot of eff a digital effects, a background in it that's put in. Um, that's like for example, the big wave hits New York. You, know, you have the big, you know, fully CG shots, you know, with the wave coming. You have a first a helicopter shot around the, the, the um, Statue of Liberty with the swell coming. That's a real shot. We shot that for real. Uh, but the water is put in later. Then. Um, that cuts to this fully CG shot high, where you see the stuff coming, with them, which is model shots as well, with stuff flying and cars being shoved. You know, but yeah, and then you cut into real photography, where we are in front of the in, in front of the actual public library, where we have again our actors making their way towards the steps. Then you cut back around, and you see the wave coming, which is real photography with blue screen there. You know, which added in the the wave, and then most of that scene has no visual, has no uh, effects, uh, digital effects. Most of that scene is shot for real, because with the rain and everything. I mean, like when what's her name runs back and, and frees that woman in the in that taxi cab, they smash in the thing. Uh, uh, they run up the stairs. You know, we had real water, we had real waves. We had it was all real effects. Um, we had blue screen all around. But most of the time, you didn't really see it because of the, the, the water was so hefty that you could actually get away with not adding something in, um, and which we have to try to do. Because every shot that has a visual effect in it like that, every shot that has a blue screen where they actually end up having to animate stuff in, has a huge price tag. I mean, like thirty to $100,000 just for, you know, uh, one second shot. So it's very, very expensive. So you try to avoid that. Of course, you have only so many effect shots that you can do, even in a big movie like this. So you're constantly fighting. And then when when we did this digital intermediate, and these shots come, the shots come that have been worked on, that have been stuff being put in, they always look different because so many people have worked on that. It was in a, di in a different world. I mean, they interpret their color differently, whatever. Even 
have lookup tables and all that. It always happens that it looks different. And then we have to integrate it so it, to make it work. And sometimes I have to go with the photography and, and make it like go in a direction which I not necessarily would like, just to make the visual effects should look, should look good. And, um, and in this film, I think we did very well, because I, I think it's, it's very seamless, uh, the effects. But it was a lot of work. I was three months every day. I was full time. Um, in a DI suite for two months full, and then for for the for then additional stuff sort of in the end for when when it comes to the answer print and the, the negatives being made and all that. But three months I was fully there. Do you enjoy the DI process? I mean, it, yeah, I actually do. Mm. I wish I would I would do it more if I would be paid for it. Because we as drugs don't get paid for post production by the studios. Yeah, it is very complex, but that's of course when you need a good director. <laughs> you know, I mean, Roland Emmerich is really good at that, and um, a lot of the the complicated things are pre-vised, uh, pre-visualized. I mean, they're actually sort of like uh, animated in a weird way, roughly. So you figure out what shots you really need. How do they work? Because again, every shot is so expensive that you have to really know. If you do a big, I mean, uh, this picture of the wave comes into New York, you know, looking, that has been previous. I've seen this, you know, six months before we started shooting, I've seen that shot in a rough way. Or, you know, a shot where, you know, the, the super freeze happens and then and, and, and Empire State Building is like freezing, you know. That is a long process. I mean, I've seen so many, so many stages of that shot, you know. Till it actually works, it looks semi-real, you know, or it works within the movie. You have to say like that. If you isolate those things, they always look ridiculous. But it, it has to work within the scene you know, to make the story. Um, I mean, it's a, it's a complex. It's a really. So I feel like this is very complex and, and really does need somebody. And, and here it is, Roland Emmerich, who had the idea for this film, and he basically he really, you know, it's. Without him, this would not work. It's really kind of. But you brought to it a lot of skills. It's like shooting blue, blue screen, blue screen. Yes, blue screen, green screen, depending. It's not, not, not. Yeah, of course. I mean, I, you know, I bring in hopefully some ideas. And then. Because for cinematographer, you know, you come onto a film like this. Where do you, how do you learn? How do you begin? Well, yeah, it's a good question because I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> I was sort of thrown into it with uh, uh, I did this film Godzilla, which is well Roland Emmerich. Uh, I did Independence Day. That's where I met Roland. I did. You know, I, I jumped in for, took over, uh, um, for the cinematographer for short period for a week because he was having a baby. His wife was having a baby. So he asked me, could you jump in for me? And so, you know. and then I ended up doing all the second unit and a lot of additional stuff for, for Independence Day. And that's how I met Roald Emmerich. And then uh, he hired me to do Godzilla a couple of years later. And there, you know, I was just basically thrown into this visual effects stuff. I haven't hadn't done a visual effects film before. I've done some second units of Big films, which prepped me for it, you know. Actually, um, in terms of working with a, with such a, you know, big effects crew with a big crew, you know, uh, and uh, because before I did like more like dramas and comedies, you know, you know, and it it is a step to go into these high, well, high, you know, big budget films, um, because. As well, your job, my job as a cinematographer becomes the actual shooting of the film or the photography becomes a, a smaller and smaller part. Of course, you have to know what you're doing, but there's a lot of politics and a lot of managing because I have huge crews. You have to actually, you know, you end up, I spend a, a lot of money. I mean, you, you have big crews, so you're responsible for a lot of money. So uh, you have to deal with that and that's actually what, what is in a way more difficult than one because you have to 
really be able to deal with with the studio people. I mean, and be realistic. And not, I mean, you can't make big mistakes because they cost too much money. You can't really afford. Otherwise, you're not there for very long. <laughs> you know, you really, you're gone. You're replaceable. Everybody's replaceable. We all are replaceable. But I haven't been fired yet, but you know, I don't know why. <laughs> In terms of, um, you know, you've talked about working with big crews, and obviously, camera operators are very important part of your crew. How you enjoy camera operating in the past? Do you have camera operate? Well, I. Um, I, of course, love to operate the camera, and I, it took me a long time to let go from it. Uh, because in, in bigger films, you actually have to let go. You have, and, and once you learn that there are other good camera operators than yourself, <laughs> you know, it's, uh, yeah, I mean, actually, now I'm, I really enjoy to work with a good camera operator. It's great, because it's another, such a great input of somebody else who is watching for you. And, and um, I have worked with a couple of really good good camera operators. And I, but it, as I said, it took a while for me to let go because, as well, the operating itself, on the other hand, has it, there is something in it if you operate yourself because you can take as the DP, you can take immediate decisions to change something with an operator can't really without without asking you. You can do more extreme stuff if you operate yourself um, in a way um, because you can take the responsibility for it. Um, but uh, now, you know, I, I work, I have a very, a couple of really good operators I work with regularly. My crew is, I mean, I have my crew for a long time, the same people as well, my dolly grip. My dolly grip has been with me since 1991. I haven't done not one film without him. Um, you know, my focus puller, who I now own equipment with as well. We, uh, Joe Sanchez, he was my second assistant on The Hotspot, which is a film that Dennis Hopper directed in 1988. That's a long time ago. Yeah, and, and yeah. I mean, he was my second, and then he went away and became a first while my first was still with me. Then I bumped my first up to an operator. And then Joe came back on Godzilla. But since Godzilla now, we have done everything, you know. So we're real partners in uh, crime. Um, my gaffer as well. I had a gaffer that I worked for ten years with. Now we had a divorce. <laughs> you know, I don't work with him anymore. But it's like it, you know, it, uh, I'm very loyal to people, and, and and it's a pity that I had to, let, you know, that we had our oh, Jim Gurches and my always uh, had to part. But somehow it had to. It's it's really. I mean, it's like, it's like a divorce. You know, you get very dependent on the people you work with. So intensely. But so it's a, you know, the crew is a big part of my life. And there it's my family, you know, because as well, you're a gyp I'm a gypsy. You go around the world, you do like, you know, so you have to uh, make your life work with it, you know. And I'm fortunate that my partner is as well in the film business, and he has been in Switzerland for a long time, uh, since 96, he's in LA as well. And he has been very successful as a makeup artist, and he is now lately been working together. He was the head of the makeup and hair department in, uh, on 10,000 BC. I mean, he had like 30 makeup people work for him. You know, films like uh, Seabiscuit and now um, this next film is going to be again. So it starts to kind of work that way again, you know, because in, in the end it's your life. I mean, so you have to make it work for you. <laughs> Can I, can I just go back to some, some technical questions about DPing? Um, I'm always really interested to hear how different DPs um, actually use their exposure meter and think mm -hmm. about exposure and, and, and work through that process of, of how, they, how they're going to do it. You know, we, yeah. um, could, we've, we've had um, some of our other alumni like mm -hmm. Howard Athen come in and he only uses a white card, for example. Yeah. Um, so it's, we have a huge range, you know, it's, yeah. it's quite technical in one sense, but in the other hand, it's everyone develops their own way of doing it. Which actually explains a lot. <laughs> it says that there's a lot of different ways, you know, and uh, it's, yeah. you know, thanks to Kodak. 
we're doing really well. I mean, because whether you overexpose or underexpose a little, you can be very anal about things, but in the end, thanks to Kodak, you can, you know, fix it, <laughs> change. Yeah. Um, no, I mean, I, 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 but I, 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 I used to be very accurate reading the lights, reading the fill light, reading the, reading the, the um, ratios, and I don't do that anymore. I have become a lot laxer now. I mean, I, I really look well. It looks good, and I think if it looks good to me, then it's okay. And then I actually now take as well a picture with my. I, have, I didn't bring it. My uh, camera. I have a Canon G6, stupid camera. Um, I take a picture where I put the same. Uh, pretty much the same exposure on, and, uh, and it, I can learn through that. Sometimes I put it on automatic and put a picture and, and look at the screen, and it gives you just a, it, that, that, that other layer, you know, so you can look at it flat rather than like that, and it helps you to see some mistakes or some things. Like, it, 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 it actually is a bit dark down there, I think. Yes, it is, you know. And then I tell the gaffer to maybe, yeah, let's, let's put something through that door, just a little thing in the background or something. So, but it's all, it, there's so many ways. It's all about, in the end, I, I think in the end, you, you can pretty much see, and I'm not talking about exposure itself is relatively simple, thanks to Kodak, because if you are a, a stop away, it doesn't matter. Nobody will notice, you know, um, actually. So, uh, the exposure itself with this film material is so wide, the, the range. Um, it's more about what's there, I mean, the ratio, wh whether you have parts of the set that you don't light or you light, or do you really have extreme backlight and not fill? What does it look like? I mean, th th those are the things, are your decisions that are more, more uh, important, because that's what creates the look. And then, of course, sometimes things change. I mean, like uh, this film that I just did, uh, 10,000 BC, which is a sort of a mammoth hunting story, another you know big movie that we shot all over the world. Um, <clears throat> there's a lot of stuff that we had to do day for night, for example. But some of the scenes, I didn't know whether they're going to be day or night. I mean, I shot them, I just exposed them pretty much properly, and then you either in post, you make it either night or day. <laughs> like seriously. <laughs> Um, you can do a lot. I mean, as long as your your negative is semi properly exposed, you can do a lot. Um, yeah. So I'm not so anal about these things anymore. <coughs> I guess DI gives a thick flexibility. Well, but no, it's not. Well, DI gives flexibility. To, it's in the film. It's mm -hmm. not in a, It's actually in the film. Uh, you cannot do that if you shoot digitally. You can't change your mind anymore because it's doesn't have that range. Uh, so. And then in choices of, um, for example, the camera you shoot on and lenses, are you yeah. involved, you're involved in that choice, obviously? Yeah. Yeah, very much. I mean, like I, that's, you know, yes. I mean, I just choose the lenses, pretty right. much. Or, of course, discuss with the director. If the director says, like, you know, oh, I wish I'd shoot this scene long-lensed, and then I say, like, okay, let's see that we have long lenses. Or, I, you know, if he says to me, like, put an 85 on, then I say, like, okay, do it yourself. Because that's not what I'm here for. It's, uh, you know, it's about should we, what's the feel of the scene, you know. And I, I actually tend to like wide lenses for some reason, I don't know. I end up using wide lenses quite a lot because I want to see the set, I guess. I mean, I don't even know. I mean, uh, but, um, yeah, that's very much uh, something that, I do, and I used to. I, I now work a lot with zooms. I always have a zoom lens on the on the uh, on the camera. Uh, these new zooms are so good that you can have basically all the lenses on there. So I can just, you know, or my headset. I tell the focus my focus point. Joe, I said, zoom in. Give, give me another millimeter. Give me another millimeter. It's a cheetah, cheetah, cheetah. You know, yeah, we are very much so. Always. It's all about manipulation. Manipulating. Always, you know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so you use the headphones a lot. Yeah, I use the head, yes. Communication is, number, is the number one thing on a film set, period. And headsets really help. In a big movie, like where we have multiple cameras, we have two cameras, for example, and sometimes I'm too far away, I, don't, I can't run constantly from the monitor back. I mean, 
I'm running anyway a lot, but I mean, like, so I can talk to my people. I have my operators on and my focus puller on. And um, if you are in Tetracrane, then I have like the Dolly Grip, of course, on as well. And so we can talk. We have our own. We, we, it's not walkie talkies. It's like actually these, um, you know, these headsets that you can actually talk. So we can talk as well about other people. And so we, we giggle and they don't know what we're talking about. It's kind of, you know, maybe. No, but it's, like, it's a really, really good thing because it helps me to communicate and, and do things as well. On, you know, during take even, I can talk to, a, to an operator and say, like, and say, you know, pant the right, pant the right. You know, because I know that somebody's going to come into the frame, which I did, which we didn't rehearse, you know. So I'm like, you know, I can, I can warn people. I can, I can actually, it's really, really, really helpful. <laughs> and your communication with your guests, you know, I leave a lot to the gaffer. I leave a lot to the gaffer. I don't make the lighting list. The gaffer makes the lighting list. I mean, he sends me the lighting list and says, yeah, okay, and, you know, and he has like three 18Ks on it, and I said, like, oh, if you can afford it, let's have it. <laughs> and the kino list is big, and they said, like, you know, that's, uh, I think it's great because this film, for example, has a lot of interiors where we probably need a lot of kinos where we can hide them and so on. And um, and then it becomes a budget question with the, with the, you know or the, you you deal with a rental house and say like you know can I give this all for this much money the the, the, the production with that but I leave it I leave a lot to I mean that's just how I work you know it's actually in England it's a bit different English people well English DPs are they're not called DPs either they're lighting cameramen and um, in America it's really different that you work the, with the gaffer. I mean, I'm, I work with, the, as well, the operator is, I mean, in England, the operator traditionally had more, to say, an operator had a, used to have, not anymore, used to have front credit with, with the lighting cameraman. It's not, not maybe so anymore, but I mean, I, I come for myself from operating. So, you know, I work with, with the operator, but it's, it's you know, it's just a little bit different, the, the whole thing in, in, in England as well. We, we use grips differently than, than here. Bit. And the key grip is a bit of a different thing. It's not just here, the key grip is more like the dolly grip. Mm. Yes, yeah, a slight variation. Yeah. yeah. They don't cut the lights. The electricians cut the light. Right. In America, the grips cut the light. So. Well, I don't know if Experience, difficult question. I don't know. Probably many, but nothing comes right right now specifically. I mean, like you know, you have a lot of lessons. You know, by one thing at the beginning. You know, when you your insecurities that they're okay. You know, because something comes out anyway. That's not too bad, hopefully. Or you know, but I mean, it's a, it's a. I don't know. I don't know quite how to answer that question. When I first saw Some Girls, uh, mm -hmm. I mean, I was loved. You're actually one of the three people who've seen that movie. I've seen, I've seen it millions of times. <laughs> millions of times. I can describe the whole film. And it was well, long before I was looking at whoever made mm -hmm. films. And uh, looking back on it, one of mm -hmm. my favorites, um, what was that story? I mean, it, it seemed like it was completely out of nowhere. Mm -hmm. It was. It's in Quebec. Yes. You know, it's like it was. with stars, Jennifer Connelly, Jennifer Connelly Dempsey, Dempsey you know? Patrick Dempsey. And it was just like some, some kind of extraterrestrial film. Yeah, how did it that was. happen? And, and how did you get that look? It's, it's very a, poetic. Well, it's, yeah. you know? I mean, it's a very, very nice film, and not very many people have seen it because it was very, it was one of those films that had a really hard life. It came when we, it was produced by MGM. It was an MGM uh, release. But uh, kind of a non-independent uh, uh, film, a sort of a negative pickup, how they call it. 
and when the film was finished, MGM once more was sold, and once more a new rain came into MGM. They didn't want to do anything, have anything to do with the film. And then when the film was shown at the Toronto Film Festival, it was shown like a real one, real four, real three, real two, and you know things like that. I mean that that film had poor Mike Hoffman who directed it. You know, and it was such a gem of a film. And um, yeah, I mean. That came, it was re written by an English writer, uh, Rupert Walters, um, who was the writer as well of this very film, first film, Privilege, that, you know, that student film I did with the, uh, the Oxford student film. He was the writer. And um, it was, yeah, I mean, Eugenio Sanetti, the production designer, you know, yeah. this is the second yeah. film I did with him. We, we did that with nothing, you know, that film had really not much money. And everything, I mean, all these sets were like basically made out of vacuum foam. I mean, like, the, he had three different panels that he made in this kind of, uh, and then put them this way and that way, and it was all stapled together. I mean, it was like incredible, you know? Um, it's so lush. Very lush. And again, it was all about location scouting. I mean, he found all the locations, everything is like slightly um, uh, very gothic in style. Um, there was not one frame in it. I mean, everything was so planned. Uh, the, the exterior locations were scouted so carefully that there was nothing that wouldn't fit, would, wouldn't, wouldn't, uh, yeah. so, yeah. Great. Great. Yeah. I'd like to ask you how important you think is the technical side of your job. I mean, as a cinematographer, you consider yourself as a technician, with a creative technician, or or, you know, uh, or an artist who has a techno technical background. Well, you know, you have, to have, you have to have a grasp of the craft. You have to know what you're doing. Um, that's a given. I mean, you have to know about what, the, what lenses do and what the film does and, you know, what exposure is and all that. Um, that you have to really do. But then it, a lot of it is like sort of taste, I think. Um, the technical side is important as well. You have to keep in touch, see what you know, what's out, go to, what what new lights, lenses, cameras. I mean, you have to keep, you know, there. But in the end, for the job itself, that's only one part of the job. Yeah. So I mean, I I, I hate the, the word artist, you know. <laughs> No, we do what we can. I mean, it, it, it is really both, and that's what the fascinating thing about my job. I think. I mean, I love that about it. That it's both. You know, it's technical and and has a lot to do with people. It's a, a lot of communication because it's it's a group thing. You know, you cannot do it yourself. So it's a lot about how to get other people. I mean, for me, it's like how to get other people get their talent and give it to me. You know, I mean. My crew gives me so much, you know, these great ideas. And then I, and then I put them on my hat, you know, if, if it looks good, maybe it wasn't my idea, but it's like, you know, they think I did, I didn't do it. <laughs> it was actually the gaffer, <laughs> but you know what I mean? You have to, there's such a wealth of talented people around, and if you can get them to help you, that's great. You obviously work with some very big names on, and when you look at faces and you think about modeling and lighting, how are you going to like their faces, or...? Well... <laughs> you know, you have to... I mean, the first film I did, the first studio picture I did was a film called... Uh, uh, it was called... Um, um, what was it called? <laughs> with, with Sally Field and... and uh, um, it was called... I have a blank. I don't forget what it was called. <laughs> But it was about a soap opera, basically soap dish, and um, and there was Sally Field. And when I had met her for the first time for the test, for the makeup test, it was you know I looked at her and she had these bags. Mm -hmm. I mean, she at the time she had I think she just had something done, so there was like a scar here and then these bags. And she always had bags since she was uh, we always had these. Bags. And she was great. She sat under the chair. Yeah, I lit it all, pre-lit it, very you know, soft light on the side. We had a backlight. I had to walk around a bit with her. We were there to figure it out. And um, 
she sat in that chair and then she just looked at me. I was behind the camera. She looked at the lens and then she did like this. And she looked like a freak. And then she did like this and it looked okay. So, you know, basically, and everything had to come from the front. You know? So, I mean, that was a good, that was a big lesson as well. I knew that, you know, it was my responsibility to like the woman that she looks good. That's part of the Hollywood job if you do a film like this. So. And uh, my gaffer and I did it basically. I mean, we figured out a lot of things, and I learned a lot from that movie. And she looks really great. And we removed the camera because nobody could move the camera. And we had like lights going on here and then dimming up there when she looked from here to there. And it was major. And then she was Whoopi, her and Whoopi Goldberg walking through corridors, you know, having dialogue. You know, Whoopi needed to be a stop brighter than she. And so we had like people with flags from the side on, on her and Whoopi. And, and she, I mean, it was like absurd, but it was really good because. I mean, it was, I learned a lot that you have to do that. I mean, it's important. You have to do that. Then it becomes, it becomes beside the storytelling, it becomes about as well about the stars. In a film like that, you have to deal with it without, you know, complaint. They need to look good. Otherwise, you're gone. <laughs> and you've given us an example where you've got white skin tones. Yeah, right, and it can be just so difficult, you know, and then some actors really want to be really light. I mean, like, you, they're, they're dark, dark black, but they don't want to look it, so you have and to how do you, always... How do you deal with, with it's complicated. You have to have, like, another, you have, a, a, you know, an electrician with a follow spot. I had, you know, follow spots all the time, and, and Spy Who Shacked Me had a follow spot on, uh, on, uh, on um, what's his name, the lead actor all the time, you know. He wanted to be brighter than anything else, and and rightly so, you know, we are aware, but I had just a follow spot, always, in every scene. Mike Myers had a follow spot on him. Uh, <laughs> and then it makes him happy, and because he feels special. <laughs> so it's really, the DP is sometimes performing as well. Too. Very much so, I mean, you have to. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And now we're heading to new technologies of... Mm -hmm. which we talked a little about earlier, and yeah. all the higher-end digital systems mm -hmm. and what's coming in. And what are your thoughts on moving to... Moving to, to digital image capture, mm. to put it like that. Um, I haven't done it yet. Um, I've seen a lot, I, of course, you know, in all the, I mean, all the meetings, blah, 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 ESC, blah, 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 you know, and I go to, uh, you know, to sets. I haven't used it yet because there hasn't been a reason yet. It will happen, but it will happen slower than we think, I'm sure, I think, because it's at the moment still high-end. I'm, I'm not talking high-def. High-def television is a great thing, you know, that's high-def television. I'm talking about digital image capture, which is basically the Panavision system or the Thomson Viper or the D20 for Mary. And they're all kind of still a bit, you know, in a stage of, uh, uh, they're not yet quite there and very expensive. And the post-production is still post-production is still very expensive. So at, at the moment, image, image capture, I believe, is still film. You're a lot better off. It's cheaper. It's easier. Uh, and then you digitize the film, and the post-production already has gone digital anyway. So I mean, that's in a short thing I answer. Digital is a lot hyped. The word digital, I mean, it's kind of my pet peeves in a way. You know, that the word digital, we have 30 years, we have been indoctrinated and being taught that digital is a positive, has a positive connotation. Whereas in reality, anything that went from analog to digital always was, always, and without exception, always was actually a step down in quality. And we don't really make that connection. We think it's good, you know. I mean, it goes so far as they sell digital batteries, a complete ridiculous thing, or digital speakers. I mean, give us a break. There's nothing more analog than a speaker. Okay? Um, just it's good, you know, and, and so anyway, it's, it's always, it's, it's worthwhile to sort of think about that. Um, it's interesting, we're trying to integrate some digital technology here. Yeah. And some of it's very I mean, for some, of course it's very useful. No, some of it's very great. I mean, like, don't get me wrong. I'm talking now about high-end real cinema. You know, otherwise, I mean, it, it opens, of course, a whole wealth of possibilities. You can actually go and shoot something and tell a story for cheap, if you like, but then you can't send it to, a, you know, you can't show it in a cinema, but you, you know, or, you know, you can, but it looks like crap. <laughs> but you could also, as a DP, use your digital stills camera. Yes, very well, uh, so, very as, well a, so, yeah. as, as a, a tool. As and a tool. I do, yeah, absolutely, tool. I do. 
which I think is very good. No, no, it's great. You know. Um, well, I deal with editors uh, every day in, in dailies, hopefully, and uh, it's uh, very important to get the feedback of an editor because, I mean, I basically I feel like responsible to produce or shoot stuff that can be edited. I mean, that's part of my job to make sure that we don't, together with the script supervisor or the director, to not to, you know, to get coverage good enough so it can be edited. And uh, if sometimes, if you know, there's a need of feedback from the editor. You know, like that. Very important. Very important. Is it something that you felt you learned at the school here, working? Yeah, I think actually. I mean, I, you know, interesting enough, I was the other day. So, I mean, a lot of the stuff, you know, a lot of stuff of taste or what, what, what you look about, things about framing. A lot of these basic things which stay with you, I actually learned here at the school, or it happened while, while I was at school, yeah. Uh, because when you do it first, that's kind of your sort of. It, it, it gets into your brain, it stays there. <laughs> no, right, I mean, seriously, I mean, I, I, uh, a lot of it I learned, yeah. yeah. Well, I think it's the time to move to the bar. All right, good idea. <laughs> <laughs> um, we have some um, sponsorship from Cobra here on mm -hmm. um, very good. So, so um, we can talk outside. Yeah, just one like you know, if if you were to give advice to students today as to um, you know what to take away, what you felt yeah. was the most useful, what would, what would you? Any any hints? Um, I don't know. I mean, what I took away from here specifically. This is very personal for me because I came to London from you know a German-speaking background. I took a big job. It was a big jump for me. And it as well opened the world for me. I mean, like I met with my fellow students, I met a whole new group. It opened really the world. I mean, I mean, it opened the world. I have now friends all over the world that can always go and stay and visit, you know. And they stayed with me. I mean, I have uh, a lot of good friends that, uh, you know. Uh, for example, two months ago, I went to Brazil to visit Aloysio Abranches, who was like a, he was with me in the course here, and he did his direct. He, He's doing his third. He's directing his third movie, and you know we always kept sort of on and off in contact. And he asked, he sent me the script, and I liked it. And I thought, so you know, I might go and shoot it. So I mean, it, it's you know, it's a no-budget film, but that doesn't matter. He's a friend, and uh, so it's it, a lot of very important things have happened mm. here. <laughs> Thank you very much for coming to visit us. And You're very welcome. No, it's great to be here. Great to be here. Enjoy. Come back and see us. I will. And meanwhile, let's go have a beer. Let's go have a beer.